From South Carolina Public Radio, this is the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on October 13th, 2023 from my hotel room in Manchester, New Hampshire. You hear that, folks? That's the sound of a comfort in suite. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Is that a truck? Perfect. I don't have a Mustang to record in, so this is the next best thing. As you just heard, I'm up north on the campaign trail following former Governor Nikki Haley on a two-day swing through the Granite State. However, this podcast is not about that trip. Rather, it's focused on what happened earlier this week when I was at the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, where the justices heard oral arguments over South Carolina's redrawn 1st Congressional District map that a lower federal court ruled as unconstitutional, and it was appealed to the high court by the state. We have a recap and analysis for you. Also, we catch up with Winthrop University political science professor Dr. Scott Huffman and get the latest from his Winthrop poll. The lead loves hearing from you guys. That's why we have a voice mailbox set up at 803-563-7169. It's spooky season out there. What are you going to dress up as for Halloween? I think one of our uh, members from the congressional delegation gave me a uh, little scarlet letter idea for uh, a Halloween costume for me. But what are you guys going to wear? What's on your mind? What do you guys think about it? I know the world is crazy right now. There's a lot to talk about. But the wind down is always open for your hot takes, your questions, and uh, just what's on your mind. 803-563-7169. We'll see you in a little bit. I know there is a lot going on in the world right now, but I was in Washington this week to attend the U.S. Supreme Court hearing on the first congressional district map that a lower federal court ruled as a racial gerrymander and thus unconstitutional. I'm going to start off by giving you guys a 30,000-foot look at Alexander v. South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP, and then a few minutes of the two hours of arguments before the court, and then we have analysis with Kareem Creighton with the Brennan Center for Justice. So we have a whole deep dive here on what's going on with the first congressional district map. So we have a whole deep dive right here on everything you need to know about the first congressional district map case that was before the court this week. So let's take that 30,000 foot look right now. The United States is broken into 435 congressional districts, each with a population of 710,000 residents. Every 10 years, congressional district maps across the country are redrawn proportionally based off of new census data that shows which areas are growing or shrinking And following the 2020 census, the seven districts in South Carolina were no different. The state saw substantial growth from the previous census, especially in the 1st Congressional District to the tune of 88,000 folks. The old 1st Congressional District runs down the coast from Charleston County to Beaufort County and includes parts of Berkeley and Dorchester counties as well. The district has been represented by Republican Nancy Mace since she defeated Democrat Joe Cunningham in 2020 by 1.3 percent under the old map. In 2022, under the new map, Mace won a primary challenge by far-right Republican Katie Arrington and defeated Democrat Dr. Annie Andrews by 14% in the midterm election. Meanwhile, the nearby 6th Congressional District, represented by Democrat Jim Clyburn, which also includes portions of the Lowcountry and Midlands, shrunk by 85,000 people. So state lawmakers and staff got to work to even out the districts during the redistricting process in 2021 and 2022. Despite a similar population mismatch between the two districts, mapmakers moved 53,000 residents from District 6 to District 1, 
and then moved 140,000 other residents from District 1 into District 6. This changed District 1's boundaries to include all of Beaufort and Berkeley counties and more of Dorchester County. Precincts in Charleston County were also moved to make District 1 a stronger Republican district. The governor signed the new maps into law in January 2022, and shortly thereafter, the South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP and a black voter in the 1st Congressional District sued, stating that the map was unconstitutionally racially gerrymandered to dilute black voting strength. In January 2023, a three-judge panel in the Federal District Court of South Carolina agreed, prompting the state to appeal this decision directly to the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard the case on October 11th. So a little recap of what this all means. Again, if the 1st Congressional District moved its BVAP, or Black Voting Age Population, from 17% to 20%, that would create a toss-up district, based on evidence in this case. Again, that district has been growing, so that is a possibility right there. A 21-24% to BVAP would push that district for Democrats. And Republicans wanted to keep the district at 17% BVAP, especially after Mesa's hard win over former Democratic Congressman Joe Cunningham in 2020, and then her 14% win over Dr. Annie Andrews in 2022. A bit of a difference there. But let's take a listen to some of the arguments before the court. Here's Justice Brett Kavanaugh asking John Gore, who argued for the state, for some clarity. Justice Kavanaugh? I want to make sure you have a chance to summarize the evidence uh, as you see it of why Charleston County was split the way it was split. Thank, thank you, Justice Kavanaugh. So first of all, it was done for political reasons because, of course, it was part and parcel of achieving the district, the goal, the political goal district-wide. The, the most significant move that the enacted plan made was in Charleston County. It moved the West Ashley neighborhood from District 1 to District 6. That was over 80,000 of the 140,000 people that were moved from District 1 to District 6. West Ashley is a close-in suburb of Charleston. It is majority Democratic, but also predominantly white. We've given the figures in our brief that show that that move in particular had a much greater impact on the political composition of District 1 than its racial composition. So that move, which is over half of the people involved, is itself more easily explained by politics than by race. And now you're going to hear Justice Samuel Alito question attorney Leah Aiden, who argued for the NAACP. When race and partisanship are so closely aligned as they are, in fact, why is it surprising that a legislature that is pursuing a partisan goal would favor uh, a, a map that turns out consistently to have the same BVAP? Because if they're using race as the means to get there, this court last term said that a legitimate interest cannot be achieved yeah, with illegitimate Yeah, if, they're, if that's what they're using. But if they are disregarding race entirely and looking only at politics, where race and politics are so closely aligned, it isn't surprising that when you want to get a district that has a certain Republican percentage, you're going to get a district that has a, 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 a steady BVAP. Two responses to that. Even if uh, the mapmaker wasn't just looking at race 
in the actual documents, the court credited that it was in his mind and that all the evidence reflects that they were looking at race. The fact that they were trying to keep it at 17 percent reflects that it had worked at 17 percent prior to 2018. It worked at 17 percent after 2018. They were defending this map as being least change, a map that had pre-cleared um, the Department of Justice, that had survived a constitutional challenge. And again, the lead sponsor said, we only wanted to make this a little bit more um, Republican leaning at trial. So they serve their purpose. But at the heart of this, they serve their purpose by focusing on the tar of the precincts with the highest VBAPs, leaving alone white precincts with um, uh, in, in Charleston and moving out black precincts. What about West Ashley? Uh, the, your opposing counsel men mentioned West, West Ashley was moved out, so just give you a chance to respond to that. West Ashley is cited by the court. This is a um, historic community that has uh, a lot of mixed precincts. But what we see is that the entirety of... It's predominantly um, white, isn't it? It's predominantly white, but the precincts with the highest and most significant black populations, those were targeted for movement. And the court recognized that, yes, white voters may be overall impacted by this map, but because this is a white versus register reality on the ground look by this three-judge panel, they recognized that there were some mixed precincts. There were white voters impacted. But the unrebutted expert evidence is that race was a better predictor for movement and that black, Democrat, black voters were significantly and disproportionately targeted for movement. And that is unrebutted by the state. The, District Court says they cannot explain the 30,000 Charlestonians moved out of CD1. They've never been able to explain well, that. Again, that was Justice Alito and NAACP attorney Leah Aiden and a little bit of Justice Brett Kavanaugh again. And I didn't include this piece in my twist piece, so this is a lead exclusive here, folks, like our Patreon that doesn't exist. But that was because I ran out of time, but here we got plenty of time. Here is Chief Justice John Roberts questioning Attorney Leah Aiden about the lack of strong evidence in this case. I thought this was a really important clip. Here's about two minutes of it. We have said that the burden that you're assuming of disentangling race uh, and politics in a situation like this is very, very difficult. Uh, but it is your burden, right? Yes, Your Honor. And, and you're trying to, to carry it without any direct evidence, with no alternative uh, uh, map, with no odd-shaped districts, which we often get in gerrymandering cases, and with a wealth of political data that you're suggesting uh, that your friends on the other side would ignore in favor of racial data. It, it, have we ever had a case like that, with that combination? We usually are looking for those sorts of things, and we have those. Have we ever had a case before where all it is is circumstantial evidence? I've racked my mind, and I think the closest we might come to it is a case like Gamillion, where plaintiffs would have lost there if they had been required to have proved by direct evidence where the circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. But here, if you're asking whether there is direct evidence that the legislature admitted in the 21st century that they sorted voters on the basis of race as a means to achieve their political goal, no, we do not have that. But what we do have is the factual finding that the map may had maptitude data with race data. Well, I understand that, and there's a lot of back and forth on it, and you certainly have the clear error standard in reviewing that. But we've never had a case where there's been no direct evidence, uh, no map, no strangely configured districts, a very large amount of political evidence, uh, whether the district court chose to credit it uh, uh, or not, and instead it all resting on circumstantial evidence. 
um, circumstantial evidence to, to determine what we held as recently as in Allen last year is something that is peculiarly in the province uh, uh, of the states in drawing the districts. Uh, I, I'm not saying you can't get there, but, but it does seem that this is the, this would be breaking new ground uh, in our voting rights jurisprudence. So you're probably all wondering how this works in compared to that case involving Alabama and their congressional district maps, which in June, the high court found five to four with Roberts siding with the majority that it was in violation of the Voting Rights Act. The South Carolina case, however, doesn't rise to a VRA violation. Rather, the NAACP says it's a violation of the 14th Amendment, which a South Carolina federal court ruled in January. After leaving the courtroom, I rushed back to my hotel, edited some video, then headed across town to the Brennan Center, where I spoke with Kareem Creighton. He's a senior director for voting and representation, and he manages the organization's efforts to implement pro-voter reforms, combat suppression, and intimidation while pushing back against redistricting abuses. Here was Kareem's initial thoughts on what he heard during that case. What you definitely noticed um, from at least the audio version was the justices were very active, um, were very interested in getting responses from both sides. I think really wanted to probe from the state whether or not they really taken account of what was the difference between fact and law in their presentation. And I think they pressed pretty hard on the matter of whether or not it really made sense to sort of frame the state's argument that the district court had aired on the notion that you know, it was just a matter of law. And in mm -hmm. fact, one of the most, I think the earliest question came from maybe a surprising quarter to some Justice Thomas. Um, he had in many, in fact, of the justices, he was the only one around during the 1990s that really helped develop uh, racial gerrymandering law. So in many ways, he is the sort of, if you will, authority or one of them on the bench uh, talking about this. And so I think the state had something of a time trying to distinguish it. And of course, you saw many of the uh, Democratic appointed justices, uh, Sotomayor and uh, Justice Jackson in particular, press hard on that matter. So really, the question really is whether or not the district court's decision ought to be respected. Generally, it's more um, difficult to overturn those decisions when they're based on facts, because they saw the testimony and looked at the record closely, less so on law. And it sounds like the court seems maybe challenge to understand the state's distinction. Yeah, I can say more about the Yeah, uh, please, the I, I was gonna say, when it comes along to some of that, the lines of questioning that we heard, you know, we heard uh, Chief Justice John Roberts constantly saying, uh, there's no evidence here, there's no map, there's no uh, right. smoking gun. Does there have to be a smoking gun when it comes to a situation like this, or can it be as simple as showing how folks were moved around in these districts? Right, if you look back at the cases, going back to the 90s, in which racial gerrymandering cases sort of were developed, uh, the court used a lot of different kinds of evidence and including circumstantial evidence to try to get at whether or not the state was really at least trying to avoid the thing that they actually did without saying it. So, you know, that's the smoking gun that you rarely get legislators saying on the record, particularly after the court has told you it's illegal. But the experience has been you kind of look around the corners to see, well, what are they not telling you? In the whole, can you look at their uh, proposals to try to intuit what it was that was motivating them. And really, that's what the district court did. It said, look, it seems as though there was a particular maximum percentage of African-Americans that the legislature wanted in the districts. And it looked at a lot of evidence to show the narrative kind of fits that strategy, that there was no district map 
produced that uh, exceeded 17% that the Republicans had drawn. And so it inferred from that and a number of other items uh, that it had come that way. So an alternative map can be used. It's not clear from the case law, as I've read it, that it must be used. And I think you can see in a lot of cases out of Georgia, out of North Carolina, where the state that tried to uh, evade a racial gerrymandering claim got into trouble based on circumstantial evidence that didn't include an alternate map. When you look at the Supreme Court right now, when we look at Alabama decision, we look at where we are as a country, um, what's your take on how the Supreme Court is treating redistricting now in 2023, how you see it? You know, some people were surprised by the Alabama decision. They might be surprised if they do something similar with the South Carolina case. We don't know yet, but how do you read the court right now as it stands? Well, I think the court is figuring itself out. I think it's the first state to mention because really this is a group that really hasn't had a lot of prior cases working with each other on Section 2 analysis. What I think is fair to say is we now have a pretty good clue, at least that they're not ready to radically overturn 40 years of precedent. You see some rumblings by certain justices still, notwithstanding that decision, to say, well, we've got some misgivings and maybe we'll revisit them later, but not right now. I think the other thing to think about is how the procedure gets used in these cases. Everybody knows in Washington, D.C., where we are now, there's you know, a very tight division between Democrats and Republicans in the House of Representatives, and you saw the effects of that tight margin last week. Every decision has political consequences. Some people are more sensitive to those than others. My simple point is that when the Supreme Court makes a procedural decision, whether to even hear a case, or whether to stay a decision in the district court that's been made, South Carolina, and Alabama both had decisions that favored the plaintiffs but were stayed by the Supreme Court, there's a period of time where the existing map stays unchanged. And that has political consequences. I think as we see more and more of these cases come up and you get finally an answer from the Supreme Court, there are gonna be some instances where maybe justices step back and think about the weight that voters had to endure until they got a final answer. Mm -hmm. I think these are the features too that are gonna influence how in the going to come. And by the way, there are several other states that are involved with redistricting as well for different issues, but likely maybe finding at least a few of them their way to the Supreme Court. These are things that I think the court's gonna be addressing as well. So it's procedural mm -hmm. management of these cases as much as it's substantive interpretation of existing law. And when we look at however the Supreme Court rules on this decision, should we have to revisit this map and redraw the map? It's also going to be an election year in 2024. And if it's going on, if this happens in the spring or, you know, in June, you're pushing up on primaries already in South Carolina. So are we going to be operating under the current map, of a future map, or the prior map? The question is always, it depends. Yeah. We have a governing principle under current case law called the Purcell principle that as we get closer and closer to an election, it, for prudential reasons, the court has told us, uh, is unwise to overturn an existing map for reasons of certainty. What the state of play is and what the current map is, as we get closer to whatever that cutoff date is in every state, will matter. And so when the Supreme Court issues a decision here in either way, in either respect, uh, it may influence what opportunities to get a new map are available. There hasn't, as far as I know, been a remedial map suggested. Mm -hmm. So there would need to be a process if the plaintiffs were to prevail at the Supreme Court. And so a lot of that will be as much about timing when the decision happens as what the decision is. Mm. And then last question, any, any read on how you saw the Supreme Court arguments go down today? Anything you heard from the justices that make you think it might go one way or the other? Can you deduce any of that? 
Well, I, I cannot. I, I would say, as I said, the court has been more active in its questioning. I think there were people, because there were arguments that were offered from uh, maybe not expected quarters, Justice Thomas maybe pushing the state of South Carolina. On the other hand, the Chief Justice pushing on the plaintiff some. I think it's hard to see where you know the five votes end up lining up. It'll probably be a close vote, would be my guess. But I think the, this is a question as much about the substance of what racial gerrymandering means in this context where party is at play, as it is, I think, how the Supreme Court is looking at the district court's decisions. Mm. Um, I see all of these cases as part of a piece about the sort of management of the federal judiciary as an institution. They are, as I said earlier, in a space where they're making decisions that have political consequences. Now, you could be as sensitive to those, you have your favorite party or not, but I think at the same time, the courts have got to be sort of tending to its own uh, respect and credibility. And as the Supreme Court, of course, is dealing with a swirl of its own challenges involving ethical allegations of impropriety, I think it's got to be thinking about whether or not, as much as they may be thinking about the law, how its decisions are going to be perceived as being overly or, under, or not politically sensitive enough by different quarters. Now let's jump from Washington back to South Carolina, where before I left for D.C. and the trail, I spoke with Winthrop University political science professor Dr. Scott Huffman about his Winthrop Poll's latest findings, Data. including Nikki Haley maintaining her second position in a field that remains dominated by former President Donald Trump. That's right, everyone's fighting for second. This has been the name of this game since day one, folks. But I opened by asking Scott, what were some of the highlights from his recent polling that was conducted from September 23rd through October 1st? Remember, the second Republican debate was smack dab in the middle on September 27th. Here's Scott. So, Scott, let's talk about those uh, second-tier candidates with Nikki Haley, former governor, former U.S. ambassador to United Nations. Uh, she's really maintaining her momentum in your polling and other polls as well. Kind of talk to us about that and what you're seeing, both with your poll and what you're seeing in her, uh, you know, on the campaign trail as well. As she turned in some good performances in a debate, and she, you know, she looked like. Uh, the adult in the room uh, a couple of times during the debate, although the spat between her and Tim Scott didn't play too terribly well. It didn't, wasn't South Carolina's greatest moment. But she came across very well in the debates, and I think that has boosted her profile nationally. Um, here in South Carolina, they're you know having to choose between a favored daughter and a favored son if they're looking for somebody other than Trump. And right now, she has the momentum. She has surpassed DeSantis. DeSantis is sliding nationally. He continues to slide in South Carolina. He is now in third place. And Nikki Haley, although it's just 17% support, she's in second place, but it is a distant second. Do you think Haley is, is really filling that void? I know we're talking about debate performances. She's showing that she's not a flash in the pan that a lot of people were maybe concerned about. She's getting some of these big donors to take a second look at her. Is she really doing what she needs to do to fill that void that DeSantis is, is sliding out of? I think she is. She's, she's, I think, moving up in a lot of people's attention. She is beginning to take in some of the oxygen in the room that was just being ripped out completely by DeSantis and Trump, leaving everybody else lucky if they had uh, you know, single digits above two. Um, and now she's, you know, in the double digits. She still has a long way to go, but I think she's getting attention. This is definitely going to help her funding. She definitely needs to have a good showing in South Carolina. And the more she continues to gain momentum, I think the more donors will look at her and the more voters in New Hampshire and Iowa will look at her as well. 
So you think it's advantageous, Scott, when we look at these debates, we've had two so far, for them not to have Donald Trump on the stage. Obviously, they don't attack him as much as they probably should since he is such a dominant frontrunner, but it seems like it gives them more time to get their message out to show who they are versus having Donald Trump on stage who, you know, really is a commanding presence. Yeah, they would be they would be fighting for attention uh, from Trump. So I think especially uh, uh, Nikki Haley seems to have benefited from not having Trump on stage with her. Uh, Chris Christie has taken over the role of, you know, the main attacker against Trump in the debates. Oh. And the people would not be listening for the messages of most of the other people on stage. If Donald Trump were up there, he would be commanding the debate. He would be driving the discussion the entire time. Going back to what you found in that poll, it's kind of surprising that Senator Tim Scott, who has always been very popular among South Carolinians, uh, is still stuck in a distant fourth when it comes to the presidential race. Uh, what can you deduce from that? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, his he, his approval rating is is quite high. So South Carolinians approve of the job he's doing, but you know they're having to just make their decision between favored son and favored daughter. And right now, Nikki Haley has the momentum. Tim Scott is uh, kind of still lingering in the the single digits. When he first jumped in, he jumped in long after Haley had been in, and he was tied with her essentially in the early polls. So he got a lot of that early attention, but it was still in the single digits. And while she has moved ahead, he seems to have you know hit a, a little place of stagnancy. He seems to have leveled out. Um, He's going to have to pull some attention away from Vivek Ramaswamy, the you know some Asa Hutchinson. A lot of people are going to have to start looking at Tim Scott for him to start picking up momentum because in South Carolina, Nikki Haley has grabbed that momentum so far. Mm -hmm. about two of the of the non-Trump candidates. Of yeah, course. yeah, of course, right? He's still leading all these guys. They're fighting for second. Uh, but when do you expect to see this this field really start to shrink? I mean, we're seeing the debate stage shrink slowly. When are we going to start seeing folks drop out? When's the writing going to be on the wall for some of these guys? Uh, it's going to be fundraising, um, especially as debate performances, you know, uh, continue to either raise excitement or uh, turn people off. The ability or inability to raise funds is going to be key. A couple of people can self-fund, so they have a chance of staying in a lot longer. But and momentum means dollars, and dollars are what keeps a campaign going. Switching gears from the presidential campaign trail to, again, our state, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, unlike Senator Tim Scott, is very unpopular in this state. Uh, this is not surprising. This is something you found throughout uh, your polling over the years. But he also, you know, he's up for re-election in 2026. There's talk about challengers like uh, Congressman Ralph Norman. Where do you see Lindsey Graham uh, in terms of popularity? He's getting booed at Trump rallies, even when Trump is mentioning him, bringing him on stage. <laughs> How does this mesh with you, Scott? Is he still going to survive like he always seems to? Lindsey Graham is the ultimate survivor. Um, you know, whichever way the, the winds of power blowing, he's able to set his sail that way. So he may be flagging now, but do not count Lindsey Graham out. He's got a long time until he faces a, a re-election. So, you know, the whole the winds of the entire thing could change. But right now, you're absolutely right. He is not particularly popular among all respondents. That includes Democrats and Republicans and independents. His approval rating is on par with Joe Biden in South Carolina, so it is that low. 
his approval rating is just a hair below 50% among his Republican base. And that's, of course, what's driving his overall lower approval rating is he doesn't have the sky high approval among his base like somebody uh, like Henry McMaster mm -hmm. or Tim Scott have. But do not count Lindsey Graham out this far from reelection. He has always found a way to survive and come through in the end, even when others are dropping like flies. You can always find This Week in South Carolina and the lead episodes on youtube.com slash South Carolina ETV. So much great content there, folks. Check it out. Welcome to the wind down section, our little break from the news. We're glad you're here. AT, welcome to New Hampshire. Oh, it's just always what I've wanted. I've just, God, I've always wished I was in what a red roof inn in in a New comfort, Hampshire, a comfort, comfort inn. inn. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. There's no outward facing doors here. Um, I will say, uh, it's a little chilly up here. It's wonderful fall. If you have not been to the Northeast during fall, you have to go. I have catch myself saying quaint too many times, uh, and I'm definitely. I love, uh, yeah, yeah, my view right now is a very quaint popcorn ceiling of the Comfort Inn. So yeah, <laughs> in beautiful downtown Manchester, um, uh -huh. and I'm. Definitely going to go and get some leaf peeping in because I need some good mm. B-roll. And this is a great way to oh. show the seasonal changes. Meg is going to be so jealous of your leaf the, that you've peeped. It's it's fo foliage? Foliage? Foliage. foliage. It's fo it is foliage. Marge Simpson says foliage, but it is foliage. <laughs> Our little, little encyclopedia. Um, <laughs> the state of New Hampshire has on its website a foliage report. So mm. I'm like, oh, Foliage my God. report. Breaking news. The leaves are changing. Um, but I was talking to a, a gentleman at one of these Nikki Haley events, and he was showing me photos that he took the er earlier in that day of just like the leaves up further north from here. So I am on a mission to get some leaf peeping in because otherwise I'm that's just doing normal you. peeping. And that's just not people don't like that. You know what? Yeah, you got to have a purpose. And I respect yours. Thank uh, you. Speaking of purpose, you. Gavin, yes. our listeners purpose is to call in and leave voicemails. That's and true. We do have one, and even when you're on the road, our duty is to to get into this hopper. So yet, are you yeah. ready? Yes, I need, I need to be grounded. You ground me, the hopper grounds me. Yes. I need this. Thank you. We are your constant. Shout out to all my Lost fans. So, Gavin, <laughs> are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay, here we go. Hey, Gavin AT. It's your good buddy CJ. Call in hands-free on I-26 on my way to Greenville, as I usually am. Uh, but... Just caught the end of the uh, Saturday episode and uh, got a little bit of a vibe that Gavin wasn't a huge astronomy fan, which I uh, side with AT on that. Loved astronomy in college, took it twice. Fun fact, well, a couple fun facts. Uh, where I went, a uh, small liberal arts college in Northeast Georgia called Young Harris College, uh, had the largest planetarium in the state uh, when I was there. It still might be. Also, we had the very first of its kind star projector. Um, so super cool for a little college with uh, about 400, 500 students when I went there. Um, also, another fun fact, my astronomy teacher, Mr. Morgan, uh, who is the, one of the, my best teachers I ever had, I love him to death, uh, instilled a great uh, interest in space to me actually got his astronomy start at the planetarium uh, in Columbia. Uh, so really cool little uh, connection there with me in space and my astronomy background. 
Uh, other than that, really appreciate all y'all's work on the campaign trail, uh, letting us know what all the folks are saying. Need to keep a pulse on what the people are saying. Uh, and I hope everybody out there enjoys a nice peak drift beer at some point. And we will talk to you later. See you guys. CJ, thank you so much for calling. Uh, love that you're a big astronomy fan, Stan. Oh, yeah. I was more, <laughs> excuse me, I was more shocked by the the premise that your college, your small liberal arts school, was 400 to 500 students. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to clarify with CJ and get back to the pod whether his class was 400 kids or the entire school was 400 kids. Yeah, that that is that is small. I don't get that. You know. And I will say that was my problem with astronomy was that it was a massive lecture hall. Uh, I And I thought I was going to be interested by it. I, I am interested in astronomy. I just could not grasp it. And by grasp, I mean test. I couldn't take the <laughs> test properly enough. I had a D and I was like, I'm going to pull this out. The D became an F. Oh, uh, yeah. My As GPA was As torched. And um, <laughs> the rest of my college experience was stressful. <laughs> oh, come on, man. I got an A. That was one of my best You solid have a A's math brain, my friend. I do not have a math brain. Um, <laughs> but then I took um, I took earth sciences because I had to make up the class. I had to make up the credit. And uh, I think I got a B plus in that. I'm way more terra firma than the big, stars. The st- I'm big, big into stars. I love astronomical units. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, and I'm... I, I, I do got to say, CJ, always be selling Peak Drift Brewing. Mm-hmm. Great job. And, uh, and also, I feel bad for you because we uh, we were up till about 12.15 last night discussing he's a Braves fan, I'm a Phillies fan, and the Phillies beat the Braves yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know he's not feeling well, and, and he probably feels like he wants to uh, fly into the sun right now. But oh. So thank you for oh, calling anyway, not CJ. Not too close. Yeah, I, I will say, obviously, uh, having covered the 2017 total solar eclipse of the heart, um, mm-hmm. I do. I do That's what's appreciate called. it. So, um, but AT, it's good to talk to you. Like I said, keeping me grounded as I'm flying around this country right now, seeing yes. the people, talking to the people, uh, seeing the Supreme Court justices. Let's start there because that was just wild to me. Right? Yeah. So like, let's rank them in how hot they are. Okay. <laughs> let's start obviously with Alito. No, just kidding. <laughs> good for a minute. I was like, I, I knew everyone's name. I was like, hey, who? Which one is that one? I was like, oh. Um, <laughs> What's it? What's it been like? Truly, if if I'm speaking for the listeners here, I want to know what it's been like being in D.C. Mm-hmm. at a time of so much oh, happening, so much yeah. tumult. It, it was wild. Like we um, we got there on Tuesday morning. We had a lot to do. We had to go do some stand-ups outside the Supreme Court. Then we're like, oh, let's go do a tour at the at the Congress because we knew someone who works in McConnell's office who gave us like a little behind-the-scenes tour. And while me and uh, Amy, producer Amy, were, were waiting in the rotunda. And it's like busy with tourists. We see Mark Meadows, former like, Trump chief of staff, walk <laughs> yeah, by. Mark like, Meadows. Yeah. You know, he has a mugshot. You're like, oh, that what? Like, because everything's going on with the speakers race. And yeah. then we get a behind the scenes tour, and we're doing all that. And um, it was just, it was just kind of surreal. And then I ran into PBS NewsHour correspondent Lisa Desjardins. Oh, uh, we were over the Cannon I, office building. I, I cannot tell you how jealous I am that not only. Did you meet? Yeah, when I bum like, rushed Judy Woodruff on a Judy? jetway yeah. going on a plane back to Columbia. <laughs> and now you now you meet Lisa Desjardins. I, I did it like, again. Amazing. And it was so amazing. funny because Amy and I were like, oh, let's go get some coffee downstairs. We're hungry. We need a bite before we do other things today. And we kind of manifested her because we were up in the Cannon office building rotunda, which is where all the TV stations do their live shots. If you see a shot from the Congress, like that's typically where they are unless they're in the hallway somewhere. So I was like, okay, well, I don't see one up here, but let's go downstairs. And... Sure enough, we're walking in. I was like, 
oh, that is Lisa Desjardins right there. Oh, yeah. And then Amy starts freaking out. I was like, calm down. She's paying. Hey. Then we can bum rush her. I'm like, I've been in these situations before where you get so overhyped. And I'm like, you have to take a step back. And uh, she, you know, she used to work in Columbia. She, I think she went to USC, too, because she had her Gamecocks lanyard on, too. She was so excited oh, to see PBS go folks. Cox. Absolutely. So it was, it was wild. I was like, this trip is going amazing so far. And then, of course, other public media royalty, Nina Totenberg. Nina Totenberg. I mean, you were just bumping elbows. When I, when I think, speaking of rankings in this episode, mm-hmm. like in my head, I have Lisa, I have Judy, I have Nina, and then I have Gavin Jackson just below those three. Yeah, it, and I mean, this is where it. you belong. So <laughs> to get to the Supreme Court, we had like arranged it earlier, like, you know, there's temporary day passes. There's a whole, uh, you know, contingent of reporters that cover it day to day when they're in session. And so we get there early, we get the pass, it's all going well, everything's great. Like you're behind the scenes of the Supreme Court. You know, I grew up in DC. I've been to a lot of different buildings. You've been in Correct. like, you know, uh, you know, the monuments and the different museums. I haven't been to the Mon- the Washington Monument, but like different places. But the Supreme Court's always difficult to get into. You don't really go in there. You don't really see many too, too many photos, stuff like that. So it was all like, I was wide-eyed walking in there in the, mo- the marble mm-hmm. halls and all this stuff. It was very uh, reverent. Right, irreverent, reverent, 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 and yes. you're just like, oh, like the oh. So we're lined up in this hallway, about ready to go upstairs, like right before the hearings, and who comes walking down as all these other schlubby little reporters are lined up against the hallway, but Miss Nina Thunberg herself, mm. and Amy was right mm. next to me, and she heard me just <gasps> like I, I, I it, maybe it was a little too dramatic, I don't know, but I was like, <gasps> like here she comes, like <laughs> these are the emotions I need you to remember when we're in the booth recording the next season of South the Spooky. Like, yes. These are the emotions you need to access. Here comes please, the 10th okay? Supreme Court Justice, Miss yes. Nina Tomberg. <laughs> and, and then she cuts in front of us in the security line. I'm like, go right ahead, Queen. Like, Go this ahead. is not, yes, I am yes, just a ma'am. peasant here. Yes, um, but correct. it was super interesting going to the court because, again, like, you don't have photos in there, you don't have video. Uh, you're looking around. You see, I saw some folks from uh, South Carolina wave to. And then I'm wedged in like this little alcove. I can see everything off to the side. And then the, the Supreme Court sketch artist is right behind me and she keeps bumping her board on my back like I'm a, a human <laughs> you were an easel. You were a human easel, a flesh easel, yes. And correct. I said, this is how they treat the out-of-towners? Okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. I used to be them. Now I'm now I'm the out-of-towner. I used to be them, though. But yeah, it, it was a very uh, interesting trip to D.C. And then... Uh, you know, before we left, I was like, well, if Nikki's going to be on the trail, like I need to go catch up. I haven't been on the trail mm-hmm. in a minute. So let's just tack it on. I'm already in DC. Let me just fly further north because you always connect in DC. Yada, yada, yada. You're in a comfort in. Anyway, yeah. Gavin, yeah, we so got to catch go. up. We'll keep talking later. But please yeah. get back to Columbia safely. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, if you, if I see anyone listening at the fair tonight, I can't, I can't pr- promote it. I'll be, it, this will have happened already, but I will be at the fair tonight. Anyway, time traveling. So, Gavin. Say goodbye, please. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll be back soon. Leave us a message like CJ did at 803-563-7169. We appreciate you guys calling. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. Yeah, except when she fat shamed me. But, I mean... I deserved it. Like, I'm not... I appreciate it. Oh, you can put that at the end? (laughs) Yeah. That's so good.